The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. We are going to be doing an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, now, for the past probably almost four months, we have been going through the sermon, and we've been uh, kind of combing through it, right? We've been getting uh, detailed into the specifics, and uh, we wanted to close out before we go on to our next series, and we wanted to do an overview. So, uh, a couple reasons why do an overview. Well, first, I think it's really important that we do an overview, because sometimes the Lord speaks to us, and we forget what He says. Anybody else, like, have that occasion? You're like, man, that was really clear. God spoke to me, and then like three weeks down the road, you're like, what did he say? You know, and so, and so one of the reasons we do an overview is because we need to constantly be reminded of the things that God is speaking to our lives, of how he's convicting us, of how he's leading us. And so we want to do an overview because um, perhaps sometime in this four months, God's convicted you, God's moved in your life, and there maybe you haven't followed up with obedience or with repentance, or maybe it's just another encouragement that God would have for you to continue to pursue this, continue to be faithful in what he's called you to. Um, uh, and another thing is that we want it to be a, a spiritual checkup. You know, sometimes we uh, we hear one sermon and it's it's okay, but uh, but I think when we hear the whole sermon on the mount, when we get Jesus in His fullness, man, what a what better litmus test can we find of our spiritual health, of what's really going on inside of us? You know, it's like going to the doctor and getting your labs, and you're like, oh well, I'm out of these, this, 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 and I need to actually change. And so too, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it's it's a spiritual checkup. It kind of it, it reveals our heart. It peels it back and shows where we are, and and it's really helpful to have that because we can deceive ourselves. We're really good at that. I'm good. I'm okay. And the only way that we can see what's going on in our heart is to see the truth. And so what a better way than Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he comes and he has his most lengthy exposition of what the kingdom is. And so it, hopefully this is a time where, um, where your heart is checked and where you're revealed and the Lord does work, does heart work in you. And so uh, another thing is that sometimes we take scripture out of context, right? Sometimes we, we will find this little piece and we forget the big picture and how that little piece fits in with the big picture. And so today is going to be a shotgun approach versus a rifle, all right? So we're going to read the whole thing and it's going to go everywhere, okay? And so please pray for me because I'm a preacher and like I can get caught up in the details and we got big picture stuff to do, all right? So please pray for me and I've prayed for you. So we want to we wanna keep going through and not get stuck in, in the details. So the context of the Sermon on the Mount, before we read the whole thing, uh, we want to know the context. So what's Matthew's purpose? All the Gospels, all the four Gospels, they have a purpose in their writing. That's why they're unique. They're different. All of them have a little bit different uh, edge on them or different style. And so one of the premier purposes of Matthew is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Right? In the Old Testament, God called a people to himself, and their name was Israel. And their story kind of climaxes and ends, and, and you're left kind of wondering what's going to happen. What's going to happen in the Old Testament? You've got God's justice and God's mercy, and is God going to wipe them off, or is God going to show mercy and delineate his, you know, like lower his standard? And what's going to happen? And Matthew writes and says, Jesus comes on the scene to fulfill the story of Israel. 
this, this, this anticlimactic ending, Jesus shows up and, and Matthew is saying he is the new Israel. He's come to do what God's people couldn't do. And you see that specifically in, in, in this context because Matthew is showing that Jesus is the true Moses. Right? That Moses was the one that God used to deliver people, his people Israel from the land of Egypt. They were in slavery, they were captive, and God raised up Moses and Moses came in and was this deliverer. Right? He proclaimed the judgment of God upon evil, but also he proclaimed the grace and deliverance of God upon his people. And so he brought them out. They went through the Red Sea, which was the sea of deliverance. And then God, Moses brought them to the mountain and he gave them God's law. And they covenanted. Right? There was this covenant with Moses and with God's people. And he says, don't you see that Jesus is the true and better Moses? He's come to set his people free from a greater slavery than simply physical bondage, the, the slavery of sin. He's come to rescue and deliver. He came out of Egypt, right, to, to bring freedom for us. He, you see that he is baptized right before this. He's baptized. And so, and not only that, but he goes up on a mountain and he proclaims the true way, the, the, the new law, the, the true purpose of the law. And so Jesus comes and he is the true and better Moses to bring God's people to a true and lasting redemption where Moses could only bring one that was partial and was temporary. So we see the, the, the context, Matthew 3, uh, Jesus is, you know, John the Baptist is getting started and then Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and we learn about Jesus' identity. He comes up and we see the Trinity there. And in Matthew 4, we see Jesus, it goes, and before Jesus goes into his ministry, he's tempted. He goes through the wilderness, and he's tempted for 40 days. Once again, Israel, 40 years. And so he, he's, he's tempted by here, and it's through this on the other side that he begins his public ministry. And he goes forth, it's in this that he calls his disciples to himself in, in Matthew 4. He picks, he decides the 12, and then he begins his ministry. He starts proclaiming the kingdom, just as John the Baptist did. And not only that does he proclaim the kingdom, but he displays the kingdom. The kingdom is coming in power. You see the sick are healed. You see uh, lepers cleansed. You see the demons are cast out. And so you see the power of the kingdom beginning to spread all across the region where Jesus was. And people begin to flock to him. I mean, everybody in all the region is like, hey, this guy's got it going on. He's healing people. He's you know, multiplying food. I mean, let's go and check him out. And so you see quickly that Jesus has a massive crowd around him. And it's always interesting to see what Jesus does with a crowd because our culture is very infatuated with a crowd. We want a crowd and we want to keep a crowd. But it's interesting what Jesus does. Whenever a crowd gathers around, he gives them a very hard teaching. And he does again in the Sermon on the Mount, is that you see that Jesus calls up his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. And he's teaching his disciples in the sermon. The sermon is for the disciples, but the crowd is gathered around listening in. The crowd is listening in to this sermon that Jesus is, is teaching his disciples. So we've kind of looked at the context. I want to talk about the approach. So um, one of the main one of the big things that we're going to trace through the sermon as we listen today is that Jesus talks about that there are different ways to approach God that are false. That there are, there are different ways to approach life that are false. Some people read the Sermon on the Mount and they make this mistake. They think that Jesus is contrasting the way of the world versus the way of Jesus. Right? That, that what he's saying, he's saying, look at those worldly people. Don't be like those worldly people. Don't be like the pagans. And there, there's part of that in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does say, hey, don't, you know, we are called to be different. We're called to be a light to the world. But notice, one of the primary things that Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is that he is contrasting following him 
from being religious. When you look at the context of it, he's talking about the Pharisees. And so constantly in this sermon, you're gonna see, and it's so important that we make this distinguishment because a lot of times non-Christians come in and they think that what they're rejecting is Christianity, but all along they've never actually seen Christianity. They've never heard of Christianity. What they've heard of is they heard of religion. And so Jesus is clear in distinguishing following him versus following religion. And so you see that, that irreligion and religion are both opposed to the way of Jesus. In irreligion, we see is this outright rebellion against God. God, I know what's best for me. I don't want to submit to your standards. I don't want to honor you. My life is better lived on my terms. And you see this outright rebellion. And Jesus clearly contrasts his following him from that and says that that way is going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you. It's going to leave you empty. It's going to leave you unfulfilled. It's going to lead to destruction. But then he also, he contrasts religion. He contrasts and think about this, the religion and following Jesus outwardly sometimes look very similar, don't they? I mean, both people go to church, both people read their Bible, both people pray, both people give, both people serve. Even Jesus talked about both people call him Lord, have an emotional connection to him. But he says that there is a very clear distinguishment in following me. And this is what we're going to look at is that it's this inward out righteousness rather than outward in. He talks about that the kingdom of God comes and it changes who we are from the inside out rather than primarily coming and changing us from the outside in. And so I think it's so important that in our lives, and, and especially as we relate to non-Christians, that we are clear and understand the distinguishment Jesus makes and how people approach him. So, what we are going to, the, well, the big idea, before I get ahead of myself, the big idea uh, is that Jesus the king brings a kingdom. Jesus the king brings a kingdom. His kingdom displays his glory and radically changes who we are and how we live. One of the premier things that the Sermon on the Mount does is it shows the glory of Christ. It shows, and what I mean by glory is it shows his fame, it shows his perfection, it shows his ability because, I don't know about you, but hopefully after you're done with this, like, I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm like a smoldering wreck. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I fall far short. But then it points you to the one who doesn't. And, and for me, whenever I see Olympic athletes, you know, you, you look at, like, Michael Phelps, or you look at somebody that's running, you're like, you look on the TV, you're like, oh, that's not that bad. But then you go run 100 meters, and you're like, wow, I'm really slow. You know, or you get in the pool, and you're like, man, I, you know, he makes it look so easy. <laughs> And then you actually compare yourself and you're like, they're actually really good. And it, it makes their, their fame or their glory even greater. And so in this context, when we see how far we fall short and then we see the ability of Jesus, it shows us his fame. It shows us his glory. It shows us his perfection. And so hopefully that's one of the things that as you listen on the Sermon on the Mount, it shows you the glory of Jesus. And that draws you to him because it shows that he is totally different from us, but that he wants to be with us. So, what we're going to do is bear with me. Um, I think that this is extremely important. I prayed through this, and we are a very entertainment-driven culture, and so we want stimulus all the time, and I'm going to kick back against that. And what I mean by that is that we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And so uh, we're going to break it up. We're not going to read it all at one sitting. It's about 13 minutes long all in one sitting, but we're going to break it up, so don't go to sleep on me. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to have people come, and they're going to read. And my hope in this is that you will, dis you will fight distraction Fight distraction in your mind. Fight going off and going into some other place and listen. 
Imagine that you are there with Christ on the hill as Marty was talking about and let these words soak into your heart because if we're not able to be still and able to listen and able to understand that we're not able to be good followers. Good followers are good listeners. And so let us in this, in this time as we listen to the word of God, let it, let it speak over your life. Be still and ask the Holy Spirit to work. And so I'm going to ask Rob to come up and he's going to read for us Matthew 5, uh, all of Matthew 5. And so you can, uh, the word's going to be up on the screen, or if you want, you can have a Bible and you can please follow along. Um, Your doubly engaged will help. And so Rob's going to go ahead and read Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, uh, righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all has been accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it was said... Uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First reconcile to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, 
you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that you, your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. <clears throat> it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say, simply, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the, the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it would have, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, who, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rob. Great job. I want you to close your eyes real quick. Don't go to sleep. I want you to think to yourself, on a scale of one to 10, how content are you? I want you to be really honest with yourself. On a scale of one to 10, how content are you? 10 being I am fully content, there's nothing that I could ever want, there's I'm fully at total peace, and zero is I feel like an empty vase. I have, I, I, I need so much. I want you to imagine what are one or two things that you think would bring greater contentment in your life? What are one or two things that you think, if I just had this, then my life would be content. Then I would be happy. I would be joyful if I just had these, these things, these one or two things. Do you have them? Do you know what you think that they are? All right, come back. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about what's called the Beatitudes. And he says, blessed, or really the literal translation is happy. Happy is the person who is poor in spirit. And it's, 
I think blessed is a better term than happy because it, it means to more of a concrete state, an objective state, that God is approving of the life that is like this. And hear this, the Beatitudes um, are primarily descriptive and secondarily prescriptive. Now, let me break that down a little bit. What I mean by that is that they're primarily descriptive. It means that they're, rather than simply just saying this is what you should do, it's, it's describing who followers of Christ are. That what it means to be a Christian is that we are going to be poor in spirit. It means that you cannot be a Christian except come to God with empty hands, realizing your bankrupt condition. No one can come to God with pride and say, I come earning my way. I can, I can, give, I can earn my keep. All of us come to God with empty hands and say, I have nothing to bring and I am in total dependency upon your grace. And he says that only that kind of posture will bring someone to the kingdom. Every other posture separates us. And he says, those people to them is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, those who are broken by their sin. Don't, don't, don't justify it. Don't rationalize it. Don't dismiss it, but those that mourn it, those that hate it. And he says that only those that mourn will experience the comfort of the kingdom of God, the comfort of his presence. He says, blessed are those who are meek, meek, who have humble power, constrained. He says, why they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who say, what really satisfies me, it's not food. What really satisfies me isn't my job. It's not those things. What really satisfies me is doing the will of God. And Jesus talked about this when he is out and he meets this random woman at the Samaritan well and he ministers or he does the will of God in this moment and his disciples come back and they say, we've got food. And he says, I have food that you know nothing of. The food that satisfies me is to do the will of my father. And he says that this is why we exist. This is what truly satisfies our soul. This is the, the, the water that never runs dry that will fill us up. And so hear this, that as you read through the Beatitudes, hopefully you're, you're seeing that this is describing the life that comes to God. This is describing who we are as Christians. And yes, secondarily, it prescribes the attitudes that we should strive for. Because hear this, this is describing Christ. Christ exemplified all these attitudes, and so it's describing the beautiful, the blessed life is a life that is connected to Jesus. You see, Jesus exemplifies, he lives all of these out, and when you and I connect to him, he, he makes us like himself. He makes us poor in spirit. He makes us to mourn the brokenness of this world. He leads us to be peacemakers, to, to be excited for reconciliation with others. He leads us in times where we're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake where we're going to stand in the gap for what truth is because we follow him and because that's exactly what he did. doesn't mean that we're jerks for Jesus, but it means that we follow him in times where it might be difficult because we know and we trust that he has a better plan than what we have. And so one of the things that we see in the, in the Beatitudes is that you can break it down in, in three, that there's, um, there's three Beatitudes over humility, there's three Beatitudes over justice, and then there's three Beatitudes over peace. Now, there's like two sermons that we preached, so we got to move on. So the next thing we saw is, is verses 13 through 16, where Jesus transfers. And he, he noticed the transition. He talks about from who we are, because these are attitudes of who we are. They're describing the central part of us, and it's redefined by us coming to Jesus. But then he says, listen how it affects other people. He says, you are the light of the world. 
He doesn't say, go and try to be the light. He says, you are the light. When you become a Christian and Christ fills you, his spirit dwells in you, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the world. Now he says, be it. Go and let your, sh- let your light shine. Don't hide it. And, and, and he says that we're the salt. And I was reading through a sermon. And I thought this was such a good thing. He says, you know, I was reading through a sermon by Tim Keller. Um, he just puts things in such a clear way. And he said that what this means is it means that Christians are attracted to and attractive to broken and hurting situations and people. Christians are attractive to and attracted to broken and hurting people and situations and, and ministries. And he said, one of the ways I can tell uh, that people are genuine Christians versus religion is how they approach, he was talking how they approach New York. He said, people come into New York and he said, instantly I can tell whether they have the heart of the gospel or whether they have heart of religion. Because when people come in and they have a heart of religion, all you can hear is how dirty and how evil and how corrupt the city is. That's all you hear. All you hear is how broken the city is and how I can't wait to get out of the city because it's so evil and it's so corrupt, so broken. He says, I can immediately tell the difference between somebody that has a religious mindset and someone that has a gospel mindset. Because when you look at Christ and when you look at Paul and how they approach those things, you see that broken people in situations were attracted to them. And they were attracted to them. Look at how Jesus immediately goes to where the tax collectors are. He immediately knows where the prostitutes are. He doesn't say, well, this broken, corrupt place, I just need to stay away from it. Instead, he's drawn in because he knows that the gospel brings healing and restoration. It brings redemption. And so therefore, it commissions his heart into the city. Now listen, it doesn't mean that you don't say, oh, there are broken things. I mean, Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm gonna totally overlook and there's no brokenness here. He knew that there was brokenness here but he saw past the brokenness into what God was calling him to redeem. He saw the image of God that was shattered and he said, I'm gonna call it out. And so too, that's what we're called. Notice what salt does. Salt, is, salt preserves, right? It's a preservative. And so he says that we're called to be preservatives, but not only that, salt is something that brings out the flavor in, right? I mean, when you eat corn on the cob, you don't, you don't say, man, how great is this salt? You say, how great is the corn on the cob? Right? Why? Because salt brings out the flavor of the thing that it's on. And so too, that's what Christians we should be, is that we should bring out the flavor. We should bring out whatever we're in. It should become better because we're a part of it. And so he says that we are to be the salt and the light of the world. We are to impact the world. And this is what we try to do with our bless. This is exactly our heartbeat this year through, through our, our bless strategy. So All right, he goes on, and he's talking about 17 through 20. We look at how Christ comes, and he says, I am the fulfillment of the law. Because when you immediately start talking about standards, talking about righteousness, in the Jews' mind, they go to the law, right? I mean, we think they go, the law is what shows us righteousness. It shows us what is the standard that we're to to shoot for. And Jesus says, I am the epitome of that standard. You, You think that I've come to do away with the law? No, I've come to show you the perfection, the fulfillment of the law in myself. And then he he peels back and he says, you think that you follow the law, but you don't know the law. And he he goes forth in the rest of chapter five and he says, this is the heart of the law. This is the heart of God's standard. You have heard that it was said that you shouldn't murder, right? But I tell you that you think that you obey the law because you don't kill somebody. Do you think that that was God's intention is just, listen, just don't kill anybody and everything's fine. God's intention with that commandment was that it got at the heart. And Jesus says, every time you have anger towards your brother, you have the motive of murder. And it's as good as if you already have. And he says, do you see? 
Jesus takes the standard and he shows you, you think it's here. You think that you're justified, that you're doing well. Let me show you how God's perfection, let me show you his holiness. It's not just about what you do, it's about why you do it and about what's going on in your heart when you're thinking of these things. And he says, do you, who are you angry with? Is there, and there's a difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. And so my question for you is, how do you process your anger? When you're angry, how do you process that? Are you able to walk through forgiveness? And he talks about reconciliation, leaving your gift on the altar. Who is it that you're unreconciled with? Who is it that you're at odds with? Who is it that you have broken relationship with? Have you done everything that you can do to be at peace with them? Because listen to the, the drastic thing that Jesus says. He says, as you're going to offer sacrifice, you leave your sacrifice on the altar and you go to be reconciled to that individual, to that person. Such an immediate, such a drastic urgency in that need to be reconciled. And so Jesus asked, have you, have you sought and done everything that you can to be at peace, to be reconciled? Have you gone in and have you confessed your sin or is it always their fault, their problem? If they would just get over that, then we'd be fine. Rather than saying, maybe there's some brokenness in me. Maybe there's some things that I need to confess. Maybe there's some areas that, that I need to repent of. And we can't force reconciliation, but we can do our part. We can do our part. Just as Christ did his part, he doesn't force us, but he did his part to be reconciled to us. And so he talks about uh, murder and reconciliation. And then he talks about purity and faithfulness. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But he says, it, you think that it's simply about external faithfulness? He goes, it's about the matter of the heart. If you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her and your heart. And this speaks to us, I think, in drastic ways where so many men are, are ensnared with pornography where they're having emotional affairs with another woman, where they're just waiting for the right opportunity to come along before they would be unfaithful. And Jesus says adultery starts far, far before the physical act happens, but it starts in the heart. It starts with thinking that something is going to bring you more satisfaction than God, that I need this to be satisfied, that lust, and, he, and notice that when he's talking about adultery here, this is one of the first mentions in the Sermon of Hell. He, he talks about, in other places we see that Paul talks about how it's like a fire, that it consumes, that it brims over, that fire is good when it's in its proper place, but when left unchecked, it consumes and it ravishes and it takes over and it spreads. And he says that this is what it will be like and that, that it's so drastic, sexual immorality is so drastic that he says it's like we have to cut off our hand or we have to gouge out our eye, that we can't play around with it, that it requires urgency and drasticness in our approach because of its danger, because of its ability to spread and to consume everything that you hold dear, everything that you find valuable, it can eat up and lick away in an instant. And so he says, it's, we have to fight for this. It's, it's we have to guard our eyes. And then he goes on, he says, he talks about marriage. He talks about being committed and, and divorce. And that God intended marriage to be the reflection of Christ and his church. That there is one man, one woman, one lifetime, one union. And that it's to be this reflection. And it says the reason that there's divorce is because of hardness of heart. It's because of hardness of heart. Even, even sexual immorality happens because of hardness of heart. And, and he says that Moses only, later on in Matthew 9, he says, Moses only wrote this because of the hardness of your heart. And so too, if there is a soft heart, there's nothing that can't stop people from being reconciled and coming back together. And what glorious, what a glorious story that is to, to man, 
to see the brokenness in the hardness of your heart and to confess it and to turn from it and to see reconciliation happen, how much more, I mean, that gives glory to God. And so I encourage you, I don't know how your marriage is going, I don't know what it's like, or if you're married or haven't married or where you're at, but we are called to fight for marriage. Whether it's that you're single, man, how can you encourage those around you that are married? How can you seek to be faithful to, to encourage those? If you're married, how can you persevere? How can you serve and find joy and not just get through it? Not just push on. How can you find joy in the moment and rejoice in that God has given you a good gift? And so to all of us, we can help one another fight together for this because it's not just about us. It's a picture of a bigger story, and that's why Satan attacks it. Is because as he attacks it, he can, he can further destroy the picture of Christ's love for his church and his church's call to submit to, to Christ. And so we fight for this because it's about the glory of God. So he talks about the purity, and then he goes on and talks about truthfulness and about oaths. He says, you have heard that it was said an eye for, or, um, that you shall not swear falsely. And he says that Christians don't need to, to, to take additional oaths. I swear on a, a stack of Bibles, or I swear on my mother's tomb. He says there's nothing else that we need to give additional proof because God has so changed us on the inside that what matters to us is pleasing the Lord. And there's, there's nothing externally that's going to hold us any more than the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us internally. And so we are people that are radical in our integrity and in our honesty and our commitments. And so one of, the, one of my challenges for you is that are there places in your life where you haven't had integrity? Are there places in your life where you have not been honest, that you have lied, and that God is calling you to go and to confess and to make right? Because I think that this is one of the ways that shows up is that all of us are flawed and broken. There are times where all of us are going to slip in our integrity. And I think the truest demonstration is how do you handle when you fall are you willing to go and to make it right because i think that takes almost more integrity than being perfect every time and so my challenge for you is that i think the holy spirit would call you if there are moments or areas where you've lacked integrity go step into that and confess make amends make it right and that is going to be a demonstration that christ is more worthy than your reputation christ is more worthy than your comfort zone so he talks about being people of integrity. And then the last thing in this chapter we see, it's that he calls us to love and do good to those that are our enemies. He says, those that persecute you, pray for them. So who is it in your life that frustrates you the most? Who is it that gets under your skin and like you're like, man, if they disappeared, it wouldn't be the end of my life. It, I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be crying right now. So who is it that really irritates you? What does it look like to pray for them? What does it look like to go the extra mile for them? What does it look like to serve them, to humble yourself and to turn the other cheek towards them? Christ would call us to do these things and this is what a, a kingdom, this is what Christ will do in us as we submit to him. He will produce this kind of life in us. All right, so we are done with chapter five. We are on to chapter six. And so I'm gonna have Melissa come up and, and read. They will go faster. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. 
And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive your forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Awesome. Thank you so much, Melissa. So what we see in chapter 6 is that Jesus begins contrasting more specifically the way of the Pharisees versus the way of following Christ. And notice in verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have your reward from your fathers in heaven. This is the whole theme that he kind of traces, especially in the first 18 verses. Is that Notice both parties give, both parties pray, both parties fast. But he says, you should give like this. You should pray like this. You should fast like this. Now notice that all of these are vital. You should be doing all of these if you're not. It's important that you are giving. Giving is necessary. Giving is an important thing. Not just financially, but from your gifts, from your time, all of these things. One of the reasons that we give is because if we don't give, we become self-absorbed people. We become people that orbit around ourselves. And it's so dangerous 
And so one of the things that giving does is it reflects the heart of Christ and it actually lifts us out of ourselves for a moment and considers the, the impact upon others. And not only that, but Jesus actually says, you should give because it's actually more pleasurable for you. You actually get more joy when you give because he says it's, it is better to give than to receive. And so, listen, if you want to be selfish, be selfish in pursuing the greatest joy you can and that comes through being generous. And so Jesus says that we ought to give, but how do we give? Why do we give? And he says there's two parties. One gives and they make a big scene. Or even if they don't make a big scene, they find little subtle ways for other people to know how generous they are, how much they've given, what they've, you know, how, how much of an impact they've made. And in all three of these, he says, but you give to your heavenly father who is in secret. And your heavenly father who is in secret, he will reward you. He will reward you. Do you know that God honors those that honor him? Listen, this doesn't mean that because you've given that all of a sudden you're going to be flooded financially. That didn't happen for Jesus. It didn't happen for Paul. But guess what? They were given far more. And so too, we know that God honors those that honor him. And so we give. Why? To be rewarded from our Father who's in heaven because he sees in secret. And so a, a practical challenge for this is who's somebody that you know is in need that you can give to anonymously? that you can give to totally anonymously, that they'll, they'll have no way of tracing it back to you and that the only thing that they will be able to do is give glory to God because of the gift. Can I challenge you that I, I want us to be a church like that? I want to be like that. I want to be that our giving doesn't bring glory to ourselves, but it brings glory to God. And that's the contrast that he has here is that it's not about bringing glory to God. That's one of the heartbeats for why we don't pass a plate. Our heartbeat is we have a, a giving box in the back and that it would, between, it would be between you and the Lord and that you would give joyfully, sacrificially unto Christ rather than that man would see you and that you would get glory from us. And so he says that we, 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 need, to, we need to be giving. And then he says prayer and he says you, you should pray like this, that there are those that, man, their prayers sound very eloquent. You listen to them pray and you're like, wow, they're holy. And Jesus says, don't pray like that. Not that we should never have corporate prayer, not that we should never gather together. That's essential. It's extremely important. But he says, if that's the only time you pray, the only time you pray is when you gather together and there's a bunch of people listening to you, then you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. And what that means is, that word hypocrite, it means that you're an actor. It means that you pull on a mask and you act one way in front of other people. Why? So that you might get your reward from them which is they think a certain way. They, they, they think that you're very holy, you're very precious, you know, that you know what's going on. And he says that you're a hypocrite if that's the way that you, you, you live. But he says, man, pray to your father who is in secret. Have a, a prayer room or have a place that you go where no one else knows. It's between you and the Lord. And he says that your heavenly father will hear. He will reward you. And Jesus goes on to, you know, the, the, the Lord's prayer and talks about a great format. And notice what he says. He says, the Lord... His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't you see that that's what the Sermon on the Mount is? The Sermon on the Mount is God's kingdom coming from heaven down to earth. And that's what we're praying is asking God, would your kingdom come in my life here and now as it is there? Would your will be done in perfection? That's the difference between heaven and here. Is that in heaven, God's will is done. His will is obeyed. And here, his will is rejected at times. His will is disobeyed. And as you and I submit to that, his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the last part he talks about is, is fasting. He says that we are to fast, but 
You don't let other people know. You don't hold up a sign and say, I'm fasting today. Right? It was interesting. I, uh, I led a youth uh, camp uh, when I was in one of my internships, and we had a group of high school guys, and they started talking about spiritual disciplines, and they started all asking about fasting. And I had this one kid, it was really interesting. I, I talked to them about fasting, I mean, really emphasized not letting anybody know. And I, I swear, after the, uh, like, or I, well, I shouldn't swear. That's kind of contradicting the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> See, we fall short. <laughs> Grace, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he he. Right afterwards, he went out and uh, and started telling everybody that he was fasting. And and it was really interesting because you can tell what the motive is. If the motive is to get praise from other people, or if it's to do so for the Lord. And he says that the reason we fast, the reason that we fast, is because we want to feast on something better. The, the times in my life where I've fasted, the times when I've seen others fast, is because they are desiring God's presence so desperately in their life that they want to rid themselves of distractions and because Christ is a greater feast than what food is. And there are times in my life where I've been praying and that God has answered things and God has directed me or led me or I've had even just a greater sense of his presence through fasting. And so fasting is a, is a, a vital part of what it means for us to see Christ. He goes on and, and talking about money, he says that you can't have two gods. You can't serve money and God. And he says that there are consequences for that. If you, if you seek to serve money, if that is what your God is, he says it's going to lead to a life of anxiety because you're constantly going to be worried about what you have to eat, what you have to wear, what, where you're going to be. And he says, but if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, there's a peace because you know that your heavenly father is sovereign, that he's in control, and he's also good that he loves you and that he will provide for you. If he provides for the birds of the air, for the lilies of the field, how much more will he provide for you? And so God knows what you need before you need it. And he says, seek him first because he will bring a peace that surpasses understanding. All right, so we're going to read Matthew 7 and we'll wrap it up. And so I'm going to have Gina come up and, and read. Thank you so much. Judge not that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets." Enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had, not, it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Mm. Thank you so much, Sheena. So as we finish up the sermon, one of the things that Jesus starts in Matthew 7 is that he talks about our attitude towards others in judging. And he talks about a condemning judgment. But notice that Jesus doesn't say that we are to never to judge because then he, in turn, verse 6, makes a judgment. He says there are people that are pigs and that are dogs. And so he's talking about how we approach judgment. As he says that we approach judgment as one who realizes their brokenness and sin. Because how foolish is it for us to come with a huge plank in our eye and we're like, listen, you got a speck, hold on a second as you knock people out because of your plank. And he says you first acknowledge when you come to someone I'm broken. I have faults. I have failures. I fall short as well. And so we deal with our own sin. And, and one of the things that this means is it means that we also, we see our sin as more gravest and, and, and as, uh, as in need of repentance more than we, we see in others. One of the notes of the Pharisees is that they always were able to see other people's sin bigger than their own. And so too, I think that one of the things that this is constantly convicting us is that we should see our sin as more grievous than others is that we should judge ourselves lest we be judged. And so we approach others with a humility, understanding that we are broken, we are fallen, and that we are in need of grace. But then he also says that we are to be discerning, that we are to be discerning with people and how to approach them and where they're at and what it means to love them. He goes on and, and talks about prayer, our need for prayer again. Prayer is kind of a big deal with him, communication, he likes it. And so uh, he, t- he says that it, Prayer to a loving father is effective. He says, ask, seek, and knock. And all of that can be summed up in this. Is that prayer to a loving father is effective. 
And this is really hard for us because we think, and, and sometimes I think that, God, I'm, if I just get this stuff done, it'll be far more productive and more practical than if I actually just stop and seek you. And he would rebuke us. And he would say, who do you think is more powerful, me or you? And so I think that one of the best things that you and I can learn to do is that we can learn to be still and that we can learn to pray. We can learn to ask, we can learn to seek, we can learn to knock, and we can learn to trust that God is good and that prayer to him is effective. Prayer to him is far more effective than us laboring outside of his will or outside of knowing what he's called us to do. And so prayer to a loving father is effective. And then he talks about the golden rule, which is really what Jesus modeled. Do unto others what you want them to do unto you. This sums up the law and the prophets. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. Is that Jesus has done for us what we would want done for ourselves. Is he's rescued us. He, he came and, and clothed himself with the humanity, submitted to the, the hardships of this world that we might be saved. And he, he says this is what we are to do, do to others, is that we are to love them as we would want people to love us. And the last part of the sermon, as we close, Jesus calls us to commitment. The, the end of the Sermon Mount, after all of this, of Jesus showing us how far we fall short. And I hope, I don't know about you, very well aware of how far we fall short, how far I fall short, is that hopefully after now, he says, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this, this huge gap that you see in between what, how you ought to be and how I call you to be? And he says that you either follow me or you will reject me. He paints it very black and white. There's no either or. There's not I'm in the middle somewhere. You're either committed and following Christ or you're not. And he says that there are two paths. Two paths, not 15, not 20. There's two. One is narrow. One is, is small and it has few people on it, but it leads to life. The other one is broad. It's very comfortable. We've got lazy boys, you know, and there's lots of people there because it's entertaining and it's fun. And so it's very broad. It's very wide. Many people are there. And he says it's, that it leads to death. It's like the slaughterhouse slowly leading them to their death, to the destruction. And he says uh, it's like it's two prophets. One, and he, he's contrasting the false prophet with himself. There's a true prophet, me, and you will either listen to my words or you will listen to the false prophet. And you will know this false prophet by how they live and by their attitudes. It will, it will discern. Or there's two followers. One person that simply just professes me has an emotional connection, but doesn't actually know me. And what this means is it means that one person, one follower, they're able to do all the right showy things, but yet when it comes down to simple obedience and the practical everyday things, they reject me. Because this is one of the ways in which we know that we truly are born of him, is that we don't just do things for other people to see, but we do things in the everyday life that he calls us to. And he, he gives us clarity. He gives us clarity. You are either following him or you're not. And so my, my challenge for you today as we close is if you're here and you're not a Christian, you haven't truly, you might have gone to church, you might call Jesus Lord, you might have emotional experiences with him, but you don't actually know him. You don't actually have real relationship with him. My, my call to you is that today is the day of salvation, that you would commit, you would give your life to Christ. Because as the, further, the more you reject Christ, the harder it becomes. The more your heart builds up a barrier to him. And so while your heart is soft, while you hear the Lord's invitation, respond to him. You can do that through you know, marking out on a connection card, but coming and talking to one of us, one of the pastor's elders after service. But if you're here and you are a believer and you're saying, listen, I know the Lord. My call for you is that what areas that have you been convicted of that Christ says that you would surrender over to him? 
that you would give over to him and you would say, God, I, I don't want to be king in this area of my life. I want to give over my anger. I want to give over my lust. I want to give over my, my integrity, God. I want to surrender these things to you and I want to walk these into the light. I don't want to, we're only as sick as our secrets and so one of the ways that we have freedom is by disclosing, by coming and saying, God, I agree with you that this is destroying me and I want freedom. I want to be further committed to you because I know that that is where joy, that is where life is. And so that's my, my call for us as believers is that God wants to empower us to live this out, that we be the salt and light of the world, but that comes by us surrendering to him. It comes by us coming and confessing to him and asking that he would set us free. And it says that when we repent, there are times of refreshing that come from the Lord. Man, I long for that. Times of refreshing. That would happen in your life. That would happen in this church. That would happen in this community. The times of refreshing from the Lord would spread across and that we would see a newfound passion and conviction for Christ. Pray with me. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that even though we fall, we fall far short, God, that you were willing to come and live us out perfectly, that you might give us your grace, God, that when we trust in you, when we cry out to you, believe in your death for us on the cross and your resurrection for us, that we might have new life, Lord, that you bathe us in a grace that doesn't enable us to sin, but, but leads us from sin to a new holy life. And so we love you and we give you glory and ask that you would bring times of refreshing upon us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.